then. Children of the night, what music they make. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're here. Ah. Welcome to my nightmare. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Kill you all. You don't know what death is. We belong there. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I shot him six times. Only a butt. Free for your life. <laughs> 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 to a new world of parts and monsters. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Pods and Monsters. My name is Robert, and with me, as always, is Inthia. Hello. How are you, Inthia? Mm, I'm all right. <laughs> cabin fever. Oh, cabin fever. Yeah. Well, we're not talking about cabin fever today. Nope. Today, we are going to be talking about a film, a film that is one of the most famous movies of all time by one of the most famous directors of all time. In fact, it is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year, and that movie is Psycho. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see, perfectly harmless looking. When in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. Have you seen Psycho? Plenty of times. Didn't we see it in the theater together? No. I thought we did. That was your other girlfriend. <laughs> My other wife, you mean. I could have sworn... Well, it would have been like in Beverly Hills after work. No. So yeah, so Psycho, uh, you know it pretty well, so we don't have to go over what you imagine it might be like. Yeah, correct, uh-huh. <laughs> well, why don't we get right into it? All right, let's do this. Psycho, 1960. This movie is a Paramount movie, and uh, it's a Paramount picture, and it starts with amazing music and amazing visual title cards. I don't even know. Yeah, uh, graphic design uh, title sequence by Sal Bass, who's yes. very famous for his graphic design title sequences, uh, as well as movie posters, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think we mentioned him before on the Shining episode I that he did the so. Shining movie poster, yeah, if that sounds, sounds right. That does sound familiar. Yeah, and music by Bernard Herrmann. One of the best scores of all time. It's so good. I love this music. It's very recognizable now, but even before then, it's just so striking and wonderful. I truly love this. Yeah. So now we're panning over a city and we get some verbiage on the screen. We are in Phoenix, Arizona, and we get the day, the date, and the time. So it is Friday, December 18th, and 2.43 p.m. As we're panning over the city, we push into a window and we are with a man and a woman and they are in a motel room, we come to find out later. 
So I will say, I know this, I thought I knew this movie very well. There's some stuff that I just did not fully absorb. Uh-huh. And it is Marion's relationship to Sam. Yeah, I mean, I had always remembered that they were together, you know, because he, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he ends up uh, looking for her, you know. But these opening sequences, for some reason, yeah, they don't stick with you. No, I thought their relationship was much more salacious than it actually is. Mm-hmm. So I th- was under a completely different impression of Marion. We find that they are meeting in secret at this hotel. Um, we're introduced to Sam and to Marion, and they're having some afternoon sexy times. They end up having. And she looks fabulous in that brassiere. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> we. Uh, They are talking about their relationship. Sam is divorced and currently paying alimony. He also owns a hardware store and lives in the back of that hardware store. Um, He does not have a lot of money because he does have to pay his ex-wife and he's hoping for a better life or to have all of his debt go away as well as his alimony. You see, we just watched this and I don't remember any of this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Marion, we come to find out, lives with her mother and her sister she wants to pursue this relationship with sam but sam is hesitant because he can't provide for her he also does not live in arizona he lives in fairville california but they can't really i guess it's in a time of history where if you are not formally committing to each other or married there's really no place for you guys to be sexy together i don't really know but i mean it just seems like they can't go to her her family's house because she doesn't have the space for them to be intimate and he won't bring her because he doesn't to california because he doesn't think that he can provide a life that he would like to provide for her okay but eventually they do end up deciding that he is going to come back down to visit her and meet her family and have dinner a proper dinner with them um so she can introduce her boyfriend to her family so meanwhile he's kind of trying to get her to stay a little bit later and she's already running late for work um but this is in the middle of her work day so she's gonna go back to work i have to go sam she works at a real estate office she goes back to work and we end up meeting her co-worker she's played by alfred hitchcock's um daughter yeah pat hitchcock her character's name is caroline yes and also we get the famous uh, Hitchcock cameo here. We do. When Marion walks in, there is a shot of her and the window behind her. And there's a gentleman wearing a cowboy hat. Yeah, I think so. And that gentleman is Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock, as you might know, is notorious for having little cameos in all of his movies. And it sort of became a thing where people would be on the hunt for him and look for him. Mm-hmm. And for Psycho, he wanted to make sure that his cameo came early so people could focus on the rest of the movie and get that out of the way. Oh, okay. I mean, really, there wouldn't be space for it. Well, I guess there could be, but yeah, okay. He could have been just a town folk. In the shower. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, could have know, been a sud. We meet, we meet Caroline, and she... Uh, has a a couple of messages to relay or a message to relay to Marion. She tells her that her sister has gone to Tucson over the weekend. So we've already set up that Marion's sister is not in town. Her boss arrives with a customer 
who tells Marion about his daughter getting married and then he's buying her a house. It's a $40,000 house that he has cash for. So his name is Mr. Cassidy and um, he's, he's a little drunk. He's a little boisterous. He's a very aggressive man. He's also hitting on her. Yeah, very much flirting with her and it's very uncomfortable. And and yeah, he's showing off that $40,000 and he's waving it in her face. And- kind of like uh, seeing if he can kind of buy her time, take care of her. He's just being a little too much. You know what I do about unhappiness? I buy it off. Are, uh, are you unhappy? Not inordinately. Um, he plops down the cash in front of her, and it's a Friday. Marion's boss, Mr. Lowry, does not want this money to be there over the weekend. In fact, he actually wants um, Cassidy to think it over and then decide on it on Monday and maybe purchase it then. When Cassidy and the boss end up uh, going into the boss's office, do you remember Pat Hitchcock says to Marion that, oh, he was flirting with you? Mm-hmm. And do you remember what her response was? Mm-mm. What Pat Hitchcock said? I guess he must have noticed my wedding ring. She's, I like her character a lot because she's very much a space cadet, even though she's really observing everything that's around her. But even when she's giving the messages, she just kind of rambles on about things that you can tell from Marion's face she doesn't care about she doesn't need to know some of that information we only get Caroline for this little bit and her character reads so well and you just you already can pinpoint what kind of person you probably have worked with in the past that is this person (laughs) um but yeah she's definitely nosy and just says things that you're just like sure so Mr. Lowry uh tells Marion to take the money to the bank but to put it in the safe deposit box until Cassidy can really think this over over the weekend so that the money isn't just sitting in the office. Marion agrees to this but also asks if she can go home. So with her whole conversation before with Sam and her feeling a little let down that she that he won't fully commit to her um, and she is in this place where she lives with her with her family still and then having this man come in and say my very young daughter is getting married look at this money I'm throwing at her and even the responses from Caroline just have her in a funk and so she's just over it and wants to go home so she just kind of says to Mr. Lowry is it cool if I go home after I drop this off at the bank he says Sure. But Mr. Lowry, if you don't mind, I'd like to go right on home after the bank. I have a slight head. You go right on home, because me and your boss are going out and get ourselves a little drinking done, right? Of course. So our good friend Marion leaves because she's feeling unwell. And there seems to be something that I'm fully not connecting here. It would have been nice if we had gotten that decision-making process. Marion is now at home packing a bag. So sometime yeah. between really feeling down in the dumps or maybe i just didn't write it down was she like i'm just gonna steal this money (laughs) no i mean i guess she decided there at the office but you don't really get that moment of her deciding you you don't see it on her face it just sort of cuts to you know she says she has a headache and wants to leave and it cuts to her at her apartment putting uh, money in the suitcase and Mm -hmm. getting her clothes together yep it would have been nice to have uh an extra shot of her thinking it over. I Yeah, because we get to see her internal struggle later on several times. 
So it would have been great to see her have that that split decision. Like even if she was like, as she's walking to her car or walking out and we get, I like when we have her internal monologue and she's just like, I'm gonna take this money and go. Yeah. Or her just saying like, he doesn't need this money. So we do have some suspenseful music during this time where um, she's packing her bags. And notice her brassiere. Are you gonna bring up her brassiere all the time? Well, the brassiere is symbolism. Oh, because it's black now? It was white before. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Now she, uh, you know, she's dark and, uh, you know, she's a criminal now. (laughs) 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 Or she was pure and innocent earlier. (laughs) So she's packing up all her clothes, some important documents, and she keeps glancing at the money. So I guess this is where she's really deciding if she's going to commit to this plan that she has. Yeah. Um, We next see her driving and she is daydreaming of Sam and his reaction to seeing her when she finally gets to California to see him with this money. Marion, what in the world? What are you doing up here? And as she stopped at a light, her boss, Mr. Lowry, walks by in front of her car and they make eye contact. Yeah, with Cassidy. (laughs) It's a funny look that he has because he looks at her and just kind of gives her a nod like, oh, it's a lovely lady in a car looking at me. I'll give her a smile. Then he recognizes her and he has a moment where he says, well, what what is she doing out? She's supposed to be home in bed because she had a headache. But it's funny because his the way that he treats her previously, I would have thought that he would have stopped to ask her what he's what she's doing. Yeah, but maybe because he was already committed to his crosswalk, it was too hard to uh, (laughs) have to run in traffic back to her side of the car. I I just, he seems like the type. So she freaks out a little bit and she takes off. So as she's driving, we see the change in time and we we get a little bit of the sense of of the amount of time that she's taken to drive. Um, She's driving, she's getting a little bit sleepy and we uh, see like lights, discomfort, whatever else. And we see her eyes start to get a little droopy. It's now the next day and her car is now on the side of the road and a police officer pulls up alongside her and finds her sleeping in the car. He wakes her up and it startles her. So she goes to turn on the car and drive away and he ends up stopping her to talk to her. She's very tense and talks about how she should have stopped at a, at a motel. He comments that there are so many motels that she could have stopped at. And she says that her plan was not to fall asleep for so long. It was just to take a quick little cat nap and yeah. be on her way. There are plenty of motels in this area. You should have, I mean, just to be safe. I didn't intend to sleep all night. I just pulled over. She keeps trying to leave and the cop definitely senses that something is wrong. And he makes a little note of her license plate as well as asking her for a driver's license he does continue to question her but ultimately has nothing to really hold her on so she's able to go yeah it's a very uncomfortable conversation because you know we know and the cop senses that Mm -hmm. she's hiding something Mm -hmm. but as you said there's nothing to hold her he can't say oh what are you not telling me yeah it's funny also, he gra- he asks for her license and she gives it to him. And he walks to the front of the car, makes note of her license plate, just hands it back and walks back to his car. He doesn't say goodbye no. or anything, but she, she takes like off leaves. at that point, yeah. which she was allowed to. But 
How dare him not even say goodbye? Well, I would have just stayed there. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> like, you need to tell me specifically. Especially when you look I as scary as that fellow. He has a very, yeah, he has a very intimidating look about him. As she's driving away, he follows her for a bit, and she is just nervous Nelly driving. But then he takes an exit, and she's able to keep going. Yeah, there's a, lo- there's a long sequence, though, of him following behind her, which is... You know, even when you don't do anything wrong, how nerve-wracking is it to have a policeman behind you when you're driving? I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Exactly. So you could really put yourself in her shoes, and you, you know that feeling of always looking in your rearview oh, yeah. mirror of him. But and but she has something really to worry about, too. And she knows that he knows that something's off about her. Yeah, but finally, as you said, uh, they come to a fork in the road, and he goes to the right, and she goes straight on forward. Did you ever watch Parks and Rec? No. One of the characters, John Ralphio, at the end of the season, fakes his own death and goes to his own funeral for some reason. Well, because it's John Ralphio. And uh, him and his sister are constantly like just being awesome and ridiculous. And so they're trying to hide from the funeral, but they start singing a song, which is Don't Be Suspicious. And so they're like, don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> and then they start dancing across <laughs> the graveyard. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Anywho, that's Marion. <laughs> She's like, don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> that's the theme of the movie. <laughs> that should have been opening credits. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> Anywho, so the police officer exits and our good friend Marion does as well a little ways down. She ends up going directly to a used car lot. How serendipitous this is at her exit. Well, you just saw the sign from the freeway. I don't think so. Anywho, so (laughs) she goes to a used car lot and um, while she's waiting, she grabs a newspaper the police officer from earlier or from five minutes ago um sees her as he's driving by and he pops a little u-turn and parks across the street to observe what is happening yeah she's reading the paper and the salesman finally comes out and she's uh she's very much in a hurry he's just doing his pitch to her but she keeps interrupting him she um then also spots the police officer across the way and that gives her even more of a sense of urgency (laughs) (laughs) yeah well this car salesman his name is california charlie remember that no yes he was california charlie you know he's the best car salesman around and uh this is the the first time he's come across the customer trying to uh pressure him well it's the first time the customer ever high pressured the salesman yeah he is definitely like thrown off by the fact that she's like i'll take this car like she does not care anything about anything she's in a hurry she wants to trade in her old car and she says that she has cash to make up the difference he gets suspicious when she just accepts the price of a random car she doesn't haggle and she doesn't uh, test drive it nope she just wants the car he's a little hesitant and kind of comments that this seems a little weird and out of the ordinary she is able though to convince him to sell her the car yeah, uh, with trading her car in, it's going to now cost her $700 for this new 
I guess it's a used car. It's a used car. Yeah, yeah. While she's doing this, the police officer pulls into the lot. And as she's pulling away in her new, new to her car, the mechanic who has been giving her old car a once over yells out to her, which startles her. And her, she had actually forgotten her bags in the old car. Hey! So he pops those in her car. She takes off. And we get some suspenseful music. Yeah, some great music here while she's driving. And she is uh, starting to go mad thinking about uh, she's playing the conversations going on. Every single scenario in her head that, that starts off with the salesman and the police officer talking about how really weird and odd the whole transaction was, as well as Caroline and Mr. Lowry on Monday talking about how Mr. Lowry has reached out to her sister talking to Cassidy. Cassidy says some really creepy thing about oh, yeah. like her flesh. Yeah, he she's imagining that Cassidy is finding out that his $40,000 is gone mm-hmm. and he says if he doesn't get it back, he'll replace it with her soft flesh. That's so weird. Well, I ain't about to kiss off $40,000. I'll get it back and if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with her fine soft flesh. <laughs> the whole thing is so weird. So, also a reminder, since her sister is out of town, her sister wouldn't know anything about it anyway till Monday. Yeah. So, the road is starting to get rainy, and she's tired, and she can't see, because frankly, it looks like they just blasting the hose directly <laughs> at that windshield. Yeah, and the music is so intense here, it really... It really adds to the energy and the craziness of all of her thoughts and the rain all around her. Can't see anything. Yeah. And you know, I I love playing this music and driving in the rain. That is awful. (laughs) Absolutely awful. I pretend to be Marion. Okay. Well, um, someone's going to go after my hot flesh. (laughs) Your hot flesh. Sorry. Soft flesh. So out of the darkness, the Bates Motel comes into view and we see the neon sign for the motel. Yeah, yeah there's a vacancy. There is a vacancy. In fact, there's 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. Um, she looks into the office, which is empty, and then she looks up at the big old house that's right behind it and sees a woman walking around through a window. Yeah. She goes back into her car and she honks the horn and a man comes running down from the house and helps her out in the office. This is a very young, attractive man. Um, we come to find out that this is our good friend, Norman Bates. Norman. He has her check in and uh, has her write her name in a little book. We find that she uses a fake name. And uh, she ends up giving some false information about herself and says that she is from Los Angeles. She finds out that she's about 15 miles outside of Fairville. So she is very close to her boyfriend. Right. Which uh, they probably should have said he was a little further away because she could have just driven the extra five minutes and been fine with her boyfriend but maybe she wanted to surprise him in the morning i guess you don't know but she's also very tired the rain did let up think well no i think at this point the rain had not let up yet yeah so it's she can't see she's exhausted yeah she's 30 minutes outside of town 
But it's, I think it adds to the sadness of it that she's just so close. Yeah. So yeah, she signs the registry and he is picking out the room for her. Mm-hmm. And I really like this moment because he has hesitation. Is he going to give her room number one or not? And he decides room number one. And we find out later why yes. he gives her room number one. Mm-hmm. He says right now that it's uh, because it, it's closer or something. Yeah, it's closer. So if she needs anything, it's right on the other side of the wall. Cabin one. It's closer in case you want anything. Right next to the office. He's very sweet to her. The reason we find out about how close Fairville is because she asks about food. And he says, it's right there. And he then offers her dinner. That he will go up to the house and make her dinner. Sandwiches and milk. Would you have dinner with me? I was just about to myself. You know, nothing special, just sandwiches and milk but i'd like it very much if you'd come up to the house yeah he was he was gonna fix dinner for himself uh, some sandwiches and milk and uh, he asked if she will join him at this point he is showing her around in the in the room mm-hmm. and one of my favorite lines is when he talks about the bates motel stationery i did Do you yeah, what I like he says too he's like um he well it's kind of self-deprecating and that he says that make all his all your friends jealous or something like that envious stationery with Bates Motel printed on it in case you want to make your friends back home feel envious. I really like that. And I like that at Universal Studios, you can get Bates Motel stationery. Yeah. Except there's blood on it. There is blood. I would like it without blood, but I think also with blood is pretty funny. Yeah. This is a really great introduction to Norman Bates. He has a little bit of self-deprecation to him. And he's also very sincere with the way that he talks to her. Um, He's very sweet. He's very charming. He seems the like the least threatening person you could possibly meet. He's the ideal person you want to meet in the middle of the night when you need help. <laughs> Marin is in the room now and she's trying to figure out what to do with this money. She's um a little freaked out by it and she decides to put it in a newspaper and she tucks it away. As she's doing this, the window in her house uh, or in her room is open, is askew. Yeah, Norman opened it earlier because it was a little bit stuffy in there. Yeah, and we hear a woman yelling, and it's Norman's mother. She disapproves of Norman inviting this woman, and she thinks that Marion will pretty much seduce her son and just wants him for sexual things, (laughs) um, and says that this is not the right type of woman, and that she's just going to use him. Um, She also ends up being extremely mean to Norman and calls him gutless. Go on, go tell her she'll not be appeasing her ugly appetite with my food or my son. Or do I have to tell her because you don't have the guts? Huh, boy? You have the guts, boy? Shut up! Shut up! She tells him, no, you're not going to feed her with my food. None of this. And shuts down Norman's plans. So Marion has heard all of this. Norman doesn't really stand up to his mom. No. Um, The rain has stopped and Norman is now back down with the food on a little tray. Sandwiches and milk. He keeps talking about sandwiches and milk. So he comes into her room uh, with this tray and kind of assesses the situation. And you can definitely tell that the words that his mother has said to him are definitely in the back of his head about, you know, having this dinner basically on her bed in this little room. So he invites her back to the office because it might just be a little bit better um, for them to 
consume food in there. And in the back of the office, there is a little parlor. This parlor has a bunch of taxidermy birds. And we get a little bit of a Marion kind of taking in all of these birds and asking about them. And it turns out that Norman knows nothing about birds, but he loves to taxidermy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because uh, he first brings up the birds, I think, when she starts eating, saying that she eats like a bird, yeah. which she says isn't true because birds actually eat quite a lot. And she says something like, oh, well, you would know because he has all the stuffed birds around. And he says, oh, not really. I don't know much about birds. My hobby is stuffing things. Yep. So he loves. It's it's funny. It's a funny way to put taxidermy as your hobby. My hobby is stuffing things. Yeah, he loves stuffing things. I don't really know anything about birds. My hobby is stuffing things. He says that it makes the time fly. It's his hobby um, between taking care of his mother and running the motel. Um, yeah. He doesn't have any friends. Yeah, and it, but then he does have a great line where he says... It's, it's more than a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. But he does make the point that uh, he can only stuff birds because he feels too bad to stuff anything else. Mm-hmm. That's true. He can't, he can't stomach it. When uh, he comments about, there's some comments made about his friends, and we do get another classic line here where he ends up saying a boy's best friend is his mother in response to his relationships outside of this situation. Do you go out with friends? Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Um, he asks Marion what she's running from, and she gets a little concerned. So he's just saying things. I feel like he's kind of, he's definitely reading her body language because Marion is very much an open book, but she's giving validity to these comments. So he's mm-hmm. sensing that something is off with her and that she's hiding something. They talk a little bit about things that hold them back and they talk about his mom keeping him back and why he wouldn't leave And he ends up defending his relationship with his mother. This conversation also involves him talking about his dad dying, his mom. And then we get the backstory, according to Norman, as to what happened, how he came to own the motel. So we hear about his mom, who ended up getting involved with the man who convinced her to build the hotel. And then he died. And she's been unwell since he died. He says that a son is a poor substitution for a lover, which yeah. is a weird thing to say. Very weird things. But at this point, they're talking about uh, the relationship between uh, him and his mother, and he says that he loves her but hates what she's become. Yes, Marion just comment and says if she if he would like to put her someplace, and he gets very upset at that of like the idea of throwing his mom into someone else's care, um, yeah. and just kind of throwing her off to the side like she means nothing. That line that Marion said to him about putting his mother into some place is really what uh, kind of triggers something. He's starting to get a little bit aggressive. Yes. And she's getting a little uncomfortable. But he he kind of takes a step back and then talks about his mom just gets upset and that she's mad. And then he has the classic line where he says, We all go a little mad sometimes. So during this talk, Marion realizes that her life choices um, for the day may not be the best or for the past two days may not have been the best. So she resolves that she's going to go back to Phoenix. 
Here we finally get Norman introducing himself to her and she makes the mistake of calling herself Miss Crane. So I didn't even get to that. You didn't? Yeah, he says, my name is Norman. And then she ends up saying Miss Crane. And even though the book says Marie Samuels. So Norman catches this lie and kind of looks at her a little sideways. And she goes to her room. As she's in the room, he goes back into the parlor and he moves a little painting off of the wall. And there he has a little peephole. And this peephole leads right into our good friend Marion's room. He looks in and she's getting ready uh, for her nightly shower, I guess. Yeah, um, he's spying on her and we see her getting ready for bed. He leaves the office and runs back up to the house. Meanwhile, Marion is trying to figure out how much money of the 40000 she has used. So she's doing a little bit of math. Okay, now this kind of bugs me. Why? She's spent $700 on the car. So she has to write out 40000 minus 700 equals. That's how much money I have left. She can't do that in her head. <laughs> 40000 minus 700 That's like the easiest <laughs> equation in the world. <laughs> I really was like, well, maybe she owed, maybe she got gas. But she didn't write that down. She just wrote 40,000 <laughs> minus 700. <laughs> That's it. And then she rips it up and throws it away. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep, she does take that, rip it into little pieces, and she flushes it down the toilet. And now it's time for her to take a lovely, soothing shower. Life has changed. She's going to be a better woman. She's going to go back to Phoenix. She's going to return this money. Yeah. It'll be great. Hooray, Marion. So our good friend Marion is taking a shower. (laughs) One of the best scenes in motion picture history. We got some music playing. And then we get this really great shot. Well, the music isn't playing yet. Oh, I said shadowy figure. Music. Stabby, stabby. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's taking her shower and... and, uh, It is very quiet during the actual shower. Yeah, and as soon as this figure opens the shower curtain, you get the classic psycho theme, the stabbing theme. Stabby, stabbing. Yeah. Stab, 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 stab. (laughs) Those are the lyrics. I'm glad you knew that. Um, Yeah, we get a shadowy figure that opens the bathroom door and then the curtain is ripped back and a woman is standing there with a knife and she starts going to town on our good friend Marion. Yeah, Um, it's done so well. The framing of it all, just you see uh, the figure opening the door, you just see it through the shower curtain so Mm -hmm. it's all blurry. Mm -hmm. And then the shot of opening the shower curtain, the face is all dark and shadow. You could barely make out the eyes. And then the whole uh, death sequence is all these rapid cuts and you don't know quite what's going on. You just catch glimpses here and glimpses there. Well, I mean, and you see the blood going down the drain. Marion screams directly into the camera. That's really great. And we see her fall back against the back of the shower wall. And we get like another shot of her holding on to the curtain as she um, is falling. And uh, she falls out of the tub onto the floor, half in, half out. Yeah. So we also get this really amazing shot of her eye. And it's just a dead eye. Um, and the camera is kind of turning with well, the eye to right itself. Yeah, it. Like, we get the eye. If we were looking at the eye, it would be the way we would assume that it would be 
if a person was standing up looking directly into the camera mm-hmm. and as we're pulling back out the camera starts to turn to then fit the actual position because she slumped over out of the shower and her face is smushed onto the ground right and it's turning because it's mimicking the previous shot of the blood going down the drain Mm -hmm. and as that's turning it's dissolving into the same movement of looking at her eye and she does so good here pretending to be dead not moving i try it all the time to uh not move my eye like that for so long and i can't do it for that long the first few shots when it's really close uh it was a freeze frame and then they played it you know you could see the water coming down and it was maddening to her janet lee uh because you know it's it's very itchy you know when you're trying not to move and some water's coming down Mm -hmm. and then uh someone was off camera and, and as soon as it panned away they gave a little snap to let her know she could move again but they had to do lots of takes for this i can imagine now we hear norman screaming talking about there being blood and talking and yelling mother mother oh god blood mother oh god mother blood blood and then we see him running down from the house and he finds our good friend marion dead on the bathroom floor yeah, and he has a very shocked reaction where he gasps and put his hand over his mouth and backs yeah. away. Yeah. He pulls himself together and really um, is able to effectively clean up this crime scene. Um, yeah, he has very impressive cleaning skills. He's so good. He, really, he truly is. Who knew? All he needed was a mop and a bucket, nothing right. else. But I will say this whole cleanup takes so long. It's about five minutes of him cleaning. Really? I thought it was the shortest cleanup. Really? Because I bet you if we murdered someone and had to clean them up, it would take more than five minutes. Well, no, no, no. I guess this is in real time. Yeah, yeah. In real <laughs> life, it would take longer. But I feel like we didn't necessarily need to see him cleaning everything. Really? But. I think so. Because he's so methodical about it. Yeah. And he goes from being shocked. He's like horrified that his mom killed someone. Shocked. Oh my gosh. Dead body. And then is like, let me wrap up the body. Let me grab all her clothes. Let me double check the room. Let yep. me mop all of this up. And he like does everything. He even throws the mop into the trunk yeah yeah he backs up her car to the entrance to cabin number one yeah he wrapped her up in the shower curtain and he puts her in the trunk he puts the evidence in the trunk meaning the uh you know anything that had the blood on it the bucket and the and the mop and there's something about that where he's very calculating and methodical that also opens up like we just went from him being the sweetest boy to knowing exactly how to cover up like this is not our good friend well, a, first rodeo a boy has to protect his mother so but if you remember the first time he left with all the equipment he left the newspaper behind and remember the money is in the newspaper yeah and he went back in there snatched it off that yeah. table he found it threw it in the trunk threw it in the trunk and <laughs> that's that i mean he didn't really find the money he just saw a newspaper and was like i gotta get rid of this yeah there goes the money so no one gets this money he drives the car over to the local swamp which i assume is 
very close to the house because it does come into play later on. I like this scene a lot where he pushes it in and um, it starts sinking, but then the car stops for a few beats as he's nervously watching and we get a little bit of like a comedic relief type of situation and then it starts sinking again. Yeah, it's, it's very good. He he gets nervous that what is he going to do if, if it doesn't sink? And he looks around like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. And <laughs> it finally goes. Now we're at Sam Loomis's hardware store 15 miles away. Loomis? Sam is writing a letter to Marion in the back room. I don't know what this letter says. It was a lot of words on this letter for how short of an amount of time we got to look at this letter. <laughs> a woman arrives and her name is Lila. She is Marion's sister. I'm Marion's sister. Sure, Lila. Is Marion here? She's looking for Marion, and we also see that they are being watched. They're being watched by a man named Mr. Arbogast. Arbogast, played by Marty Balsam. So we find out that he is a private detective, and he has been hired by Cassidy and Mr. Lowry to find Marion and find the $40,000. Yeah. He tells them about the money that they didn't even know that she stole, just that Lila knows that her sister is missing and Sam has no idea anything's happening. So it's been about a week now, which I think is very weird that it's been about a week because I believe that they had agreed earlier on in the movie that he was going to come down that weekend and visit her. Yeah, I'm not sure. Arbogast has a great moment here where he's talking about looking for Marion. And I really like the line where he says, uh, she may not be in the back with the nuts and bolts, but she is in this town. Well, she's not back there with the nuts and bolts, but she's here in this town somewhere. That's very true. He has some really good lines. He thinks that she's around and he's going to keep checking around. So he decides to go to all of the motels in the area. So the Bates Motel, we didn't mention this earlier, it is off the road. Like it used to be the main road that went into town, but now that they built the highway, it's really out of the way. So very few cars really pass by. And this is a really big thing for the motel. So he goes to the motel and here he meets our good friend Norman. And they have some really, I like this whole conversation going on. Arbogast goes to show him a picture of Marion. Immediately Norman's like, no one has been here in weeks. I doesn't even look at the photo. Finally, when he does, he's like, I don't know her. Arbogast is like, I would still like to look around. And he's like, you know what? I still, I make such a habit of it to change the linens. Why don't you just come with me? We'll do it together. So they go into the office and Norman just keeps on really kind of like sticking his own foot in his mouth where he says that um, he hasn't seen anyone. He doesn't know. Um, He goes to turn on the lights and says, you know, another thing that I got to do that's just habit is to turn on the lights because just a couple last week said that if they hadn't seen the lights and they would have never known that we were here. Well, there you go. You said you didn't have anyone for weeks and yet you say there was someone here last week. Exactly. So (laughs) Arbogast is constantly catching him in all these little slip ups. And he asks if he can check the, the sign-in sheet. Norman is like, I, we don't even use it anymore. But then tells him, sure, go ahead and look at it. So Arbogast has a little bit. It looks like he has like a writing sample. sample. Yeah. Um, so he ends up looking and sees that the writing kind of matches up, even though the name isn't correct. But he's able to oh. gather because of, you know, Sam and whatever else, Marie Marion, um, that this would be her. Oh. And there's such a weird, unique shot here of Norman Bates. 
I love it. <laughs> it's just a shot. He's eating candy and he uh, is just leaning in, looking at the registry with Arbogast, but the camera is placed so you're just seeing the bottom of his chin, basically. It's, it's yeah, such a he goes weird from, shot. Like, we see like the top of his head and then his whole body contorts in this way and it's like such a childlike way to look at something <laughs> yeah um because he does want to pretty much just peek over the shoulder of arbogast and look at this he ends up having a recalled memory of marion and said that she came in very late one night and that she left very super early arbogast does not believe him I believe he asked if she made any phone calls or anything else, and he says no. And this leads to Arbogast insinuating that they may have spent the night together. Norman is like, no, we didn't do that. He does end up kind of excusing himself, and he's like, well, you can follow me to go do this. Let's go do it. And he gets to room one, and he hesitates going in, and instead keeps going to the other rooms. Arbogast notices that and hangs back a little bit as well, and looks up and sees the home, and he ends up seeing someone sitting in the window. He talks to Norman, and he asks about the person, and Norman says that it's his mom, and that she's an invalid. Arbogast comments that maybe the mom ended up talking to her, but Norman says no, and then he then proposes to Norman that Marion may have used him and fooled him and now norman is covering up for her so he thinks that they might be in cahoots with this whole money thing or that she may have done something to entice norman to help her yeah then he has a great reaction here he is so insulted and so mad he says that he's no fool and that marion definitely could not have fooled his mother but i'm not a fool well, I'm, and I'm not capable of being fooled, not, not even by a woman. Well, this is not a slur on your manhood, I'm uh, sorry. Let's put it this way. She might have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. He ends up catching himself and he cuts off the conversation and Arbogast ends up leaving. Because of the abrupt departure, we do get a really weird reaction from Norman. He looks like he kind of thinks that he got, he fooled and shut down Arbogast. Um, he's a little smiley. I think he chuckles a little bit to himself as Arbogast leaves. Arbogast ends up calling Lila and Sam and tells her about the motel. He's not completely satisfied with his talk with Norman and um, he wants to talk to his mom and he'll be back to town in about an hour. He also has ruled out that Sam was a conspirator. He thinks that Sam knew nothing about this. Yeah. So he's absolved Sam of any wrongdoing apparently. Uh, I think our friend uh, Sam Loomis didn't know that Marion was here. All right, see you in about an hour or less. And then he also says that he doesn't think that there's really anything going on here at the Bates Motel. He doesn't suspect foul play, but he still wants to talk with the mom because something's bothering him. Yep. He goes back up to the hotel and he's kind of snooping around. He looks around the parlor and finds an empty safe. And from there, decides to head up to the house. He lets himself in and he sees that the house is vacant so Norman is not around and he just immediately goes upstairs as he heads up we end up getting a really great jump scare when he gets to the top of the landing of the stairs where mother comes running out of her room at him and starts to stabby stab stab him or whatever and he ends up falling back 
down the stairs. And I really love this shot where we are following him yeah. as he's falling down the stairs. Yeah, it's a really great sequence. It, it shot so well. I love the shot from above. You're just looking straight down from above when Mrs. Bates comes out with her knife and starts stabbing him. And the, and and you would think in a movie you would just stab them in the chest or something, but no, she swipes at his face and there's a gash down yeah. his face. And as you said, we keep on a close-up of him as he's falling down the stairs. Uh, they did this with a rear projection, so you would just uh, see his face and they filmed without him there the camera going down the stairs so it's a very unique shot and then yeah he falls and uh, she gets on top of him and gives final stab yeah a couple more stabby stabs now we're back with lila and sam and lila is very anxious and she's been awaiting arbogast it's been three hours since he said that he would be there an hour later samuel tells her to wait maybe arbogast got a lead and just kind of took off Meanwhile, Norman is cleaning up the body again and is trying to sink another car. I cannot yeah. imagine how many cars are in this. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why it took so long to go down. I had to wait for the <laughs> five below it to <laughs> go down a little further. But this is a great shot of Norman near the swamp. I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. Um, we hear Sam calling for Arbogast um, at the motel. And Norman hears him as well. Sam then heads back to the store. So Sam has been spared this time. He ends up talking to Lila and says that he didn't find Norman or Arbogast at the motel. He does say, though, that he did see a sick old lady in the window of the house and um, she would not come to the door. Lila, I believe, ends up commenting that that was who Arbogast wanted to talk to. Uh, they decide to go to the sheriff and tell him what happened and see if he can help them out. The sheriff tells him that he thinks that Arbogast got a hot lead and took off. Says that Norman lives like a hermit, doesn't talk to anyone, doesn't do anything. And so after a little bit of convincing, he ends up calling Norman to see what's up. So it's a very funny phone call where he just is like, Norman. (laughs) (laughs) And Norman's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, see, Norman doesn't know what he's talking about. He asks if the PI stopped by. Norman says, yeah. And then he left. Norman's mother keeps being brought up. And um, every time she does, the sheriff and his wife end up looking at each other, but they don't say anything. Finally, the sheriff says, that's impossible. She's been dead for 10 years. We find out that she died in a murder-suicide. She killed her lover, who was married at the time, and then she killed herself. Uh, They insist that there was an old lady sitting in the window, and the sheriff is very confused because Mrs. Bates is dead. And then we get like a really good, almost like, I feel like it's um, definitely been used as a template for crime shows where it's like if mrs bates is at the house then who's buried in the cemetery (laughs) yeah it's a great line i love it so much well if the woman up there is mrs bates who's that woman buried out in green lawn cemetery so now we're back we've time traveled a little bit back to norman who's hanging up from this phone call he goes to move mother to the fruit cellar and she is very upset about this and she is berating him about moving her to the fruit cellar you think i'm fruity huh <laughs> <laughs> you think i'm fruity huh 
think I'm fruity, huh? He says that someone will come and he needs to hide her. She says that she won't go back to that fruit cellar. And this whole thing is a really good, we get the shot again, the overhead shot looking up over the landing and the, and the second floor, as well as down the stairs. So he comes out of the room and he's holding her tiny frail body as he's carrying her downstairs. It's the next day and Lila and Sam have gone to the local church to talk to the sheriff. Turns out that he already went in the morning to the Bates Motel before church. He confirms that Norman is alone and that the old lady must have been an illusion. Because you know, these movies love illusions. (laughs) He tells them that they'd be best off opening up a police report for the missing people. Lila is dissatisfied and decides that they are going to go to the motel and pose as a couple um, so that they can snoop around and check it out for themselves. They want to search the house and the motel as well. When they get there, Norman, I mean, he must be overwhelmed because this must be the most amount of people that he's seen in a while, especially people who want to talk to him. But he's trying to be very personable and also I think he kind of knows that something's going on, right? Well, he knows that something's going on because he said earlier they're going to come back. So um, he's pretty much wants to skip the whole registry, but Sam insists and keeps making a show of it. Norman is just trying to get rid of them. But Sam's like, don't you want to do this? Should I pay you now? What are we doing? Let me sign the book. Just keeps digging at stuff and trying to catch and trip up Norman. And he he wants to sign the book also to see who's signed in. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, And his excuse is it's a business trip and he needs receipts for everything. Yep, yep, yep. Lionel, meanwhile, goes outside and she finds room one open, but they have been assigned to room 10. So she confirms that she can get into that room um, right before Norman walks out. Like it's one of those, like she closes the door and is able to tell Samuel and they're able to formulate a plan to come back and check that room as Norman is watching them. So um, they go off to room number 10. Lila thinks that Norman took the money from Marion and she thinks that Arbogast was onto something and was stopped before um, he was able to really flush that out. So I love that the money is still in play. No one cares about the money, Lila. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Actually, the only person that does probably are in Phoenix. So they are able to sneak into Marion's room and they search around. Sam notices the missing shower curtain and Lila finds a piece of the (laughs) extensive bookkeeping that our good friend Marion was doing. Yeah, that algebra. Yeah, so um, she wants to talk to Mother. I don't like you going to that house alone. I can handle a sick old woman. So they decide to head on over to the house. I love this because it is just a little bit of a jump scare or, you know, one of those things. Our good friend Norman was standing in the doorway of the office and he sees them walking by. Sam walks in and uh, is now a distraction from Norman. And Norman just saw Sam. Uh, Lila went the other way to go to the house and Sam said that she's in the room taking a nap. So he thought he'd have some conversation with Norman. And the reason I remember she went that back way too is because when she goes up to the house, you get this straight on view that you don't get going up the stairs. Remember, she went mm, up like a, just like a path. I don't even know if it was a path, but a, a wooded area, sort of. And it's a very neat tracking shot 
pushing in onto the house. Sam and Norman are talking in the office as Lila gets into the house. So we have these two scenes playing out simultaneously. She goes upstairs and she finds Mrs. Bates' room and finds it empty. She actually ends up scaring herself with a bunch of her own reflections, but she does find that there's a very deep divot in the bed and finds a a wardrobe full of clothing, women's clothing. Yeah, the divot in the bed is the shape of a body. Yeah, and while she's doing this, Sam is trying to get Norman to open up to him about wanting to leave the motel, and Norman is defensive. Why don't you just get in your car and drive away from here, okay? Now, Sam is doing an awful job being a distraction. Oh, he's he's a very accusatory man. Yeah, he's just accusing him and enticing him and making him suspicious. Yeah. When his job is to distract him because his girlfriend's sister is in the house and could be in danger. He's a very bad distraction. Now Lila is in a different room and it's a children's room. And this is Norman's room, which has some very like just a lot of very childlike things around for a man who's not a child anymore. Yeah, he has some toys, some dolls, a record player playing beef oven. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I think he, ha- he has a childlike wallpaper. Like, I don't remember if it's Cowboys or something. But She does find a book. And I thought that this would play a little bit more because she opens up the book. But then we don't get anything from the book. Yeah, I don't know. So um, we cut back to Sam and Norman. And Norman is asking him to leave. And then he asks about Lila. Again, Sam's not doing a very good job. And they end up getting into a little bit of a scuffle. Where's that girl you came here with? Where is she? Somehow, Norman is able to knock out big, beefy Sam. (laughs) So he knocks him out. Lila sees Norman running up towards the house as she's going downstairs. Um, And so she ends up running around the stairs in towards the basement as he enters into the house and runs up the stairs. She investigates the basement and goes in a little bit deeper and deeper and she finds a woman sitting in the fruit cellar. She's talking to the woman. Mrs. Bates. Then goes to turn her around in the little chair and it's a mummified, petrified woman with hollowed out eyes, all teeth, who turns around and we get this really great shot and Lila screams. I believe like throws her hand back, which like hits the light fixture that's hanging down. And then that causes like this awesome light thing where the light goes in and out. It's a great moment. Very scary. Yes, it's very scary. She looks very scary. This is Mrs. Bates. She is in fact dead. She soups dead and our good friend Norman comes running in screaming and he is dressed up as his mother and he has a knife. Um, he stopped just in time by Sam though and they put up a little bit of a struggle and Norman makes a few faces in agony as he's being subdued by yeah, Sam. It's very weird because he's using his mother's voice first mm-hmm. of all and during the struggle, the actors have to make sure that the dress comes off mm-hmm. because it's sort of a reveal to show that it's Norman. But he's also making these faces that you mentioned that are so they're so twisted and odd and strange. Like it, it shows that 
he's just lost it. <laughs> yeah, he's not well. And then uh, during this whole sequence, you have the great uh, shower theme. And I believe it ends on a shot of mother. Yeah. Now we're at the police station and we have a psychiatrist who comes in and he breaks it all down. He says that Norman does not exist anymore, that mother has taken over. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. He tells Lila that Marianne and Arbogast, as well as two other missing young ladies, were all murdered by Norman, who is now mother. He ends up telling him about um, the relationship between Norman and his mom, where she was very clingy and demanding, and they had built their own little world together. Like, they, it was just the two of them. She ended up meeting a man, and she pushed Norman aside during that, which caused Norman to totally feel um, like he was being isolated, and he was very jealous of this relationship. So he killed them both and kept her body and preserved it because she was still there he would make up his own world with her and he would think and speak for her he would never fully be himself he was always the two of them but he could fully become his mom yeah it's a great line the psychiatrist has he was never all Norman, but he was often only mother it would it would keep up the illusion that she was alive and he pretty much just tried to be his mom and now he fully is her um it's a dominant personality that won over everything as he's breaking down everything because the the other authorities are chiming in with what they think about him or their understanding and he's very much just saying no 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 this is what happened basically that he had like a psychotic break or something and now he's living this personality as he's talking about this a cop walks in and says that he's feeling a little chill and if it's okay to bring him a blanket everyone's like yeah that's fine just take him a blanket as they're having that conversation, the policeman walks out and walks to the room that's currently holding our good friend Norman. And we hear Mother's voice. He walks in with the blanket and we don't see him give it to her. You just hear a voice saying, thank you, which is like an old lady saying it. I don't even think it's like an old lady. I know oh. it's supposed to be an older lady, but I don't. Her voice sounds a little bit more youthful. <laughs> so we end up hearing her voice thanking him for the blanket and then we're in the room now and it's just our good friend norman who's sitting against a wall on a chair and he has this blanket over him he's now having an internal monologue as the camera pushes in on him and it's mother talking and she's talking about how she had to do what she had to do but she's also completely absolving herself of what happened it was all norman she's just his mom trying to protect him she says that she wouldn't do anything and then we get another little bit of the harmless um line that we had earlier but this one is much more iconic and known there's a fly that's crawling on her hand and she says that she wouldn't even harm a fly i hope they are watching they'll see they'll see and they'll know and they'll say why she wouldn't even harm a fly as it's pushing in on his face and he has a very deranged angle look 
into the camera. Yeah, his head is is down a little bit. He raises his eyes only yeah. to look right at you. It's so good. And now we see the authorities because the doctor had earlier, he had said, I bet you if you drain that swamp, there's going to be stuff in it. And lo and behold, they are pulling up Marion's car. Yeah, it dissolves to that. But did you notice what else was in the dissolve? No. When it dissolves from Norman to that car, if you look closely... Mother's skeletal face is dissolved over his. Oh, look at that. And over the um, bumper of this car that's being pulled up, we get the words, the end, that come (laughs) up. And that is the end of 1960s Psycho. Yeah, then the Sal Bass uh, credit sequence kind of just closes. You don't get an end credit sequence. No. But yeah, that's Psycho 1960. What'd you think? Oh, I love this movie. It's so good. Yeah, it is great. I told you, uh, and I, I never remember the beginning so well, but the rest of I it... I hope now you will. <laughs> yeah, but the rest of it is just so good. And it really, I always like to say this was the beginning of a new type of horror film. And you could even see it visually. Mm-hmm. Where previous to this, it was gothic horror tales. And now it's become something that is just someone that could live in your town, your next door neighbor, someone that seems innocent. And it almost is bridging the old and the new by just having the old dark house on the hill. Mm -hmm. And then down below, you have the, the new modern motel in the town and you have these two extremes of what horror movies were like back in the day and now something that is just totally different. Yep. And it was shocking for audiences back in 1960. It was one of, it was a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. It was one of the scariest movies of all time, and it remains a favorite to many people. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about the movie? Yeah, I think you're going to talk a lot about it. I am. Let's do this. Psycho. <laughs> Psycho, 1960. 60 years of Psycho. Can you believe it? I can. (laughs) So this movie was originally written as a novel by Robert Block. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of Robert Block? Only in regards to this movie. Yeah, he he wrote a lot of horror stories in his career, but uh, most famous for Psycho. He was close friends with Forrest J. Ackerman, and he was mentioned frequently in Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, how neat. He didn't write the movie, though. Mm-hmm. The movie was written by Joseph Stefano. The novel was inspired by who? Who was every serial killer inspired by, it seems? Um, Ed Gein? Yeah, Ed Gein. Uh, I think Robert Block has said that that wasn't true, but there's too many coincidences in the book that are too much like Ed Gein. Mm. Well, in the book, Norman is not the same as he is in the movie. He looks very different. He is older and he's uh, shorter and all that. Mm -hmm. I read the book once. I don't remember lots of details, but if I remember correctly, I think there's a decapitation in it. Mm -hmm. A lot more violent than it was. And it also had incest between Norman and... Mrs. Bates, I believe. Mother. And also in the book, Sam and Lila have an affair. (gasps) (laughs) I am scandalized. (laughs) Yeah, so if you remember, (laughs) Sam is the boyfriend of Marion, and Lila is Marion's sister. Uh Uh-huh. 
they have an affair in the book, and it was actually in the first draft of the screenplay, but they decided to change it at the last minute, which I think is a wise thing, because... I think so as well. You kind of lose sympathy. But hmm. in Psycho 2... Electric Boogaloo? <laughs> yeah. Psycho Harder? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> in Psycho 2, we do find out that they did get together and had a child. And the child is in Psycho 2. Oh, spoiler. Yeah, that is a spoiler. Isn't that from like the 80s? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it's an adult child. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying. It just <laughs> it just tracks that there would be a sequel and it would be in the 80s. And that would be, and it just, yeah. Yeah. Do you know who directed this picture? Uh, no. Alfred Hitchcock. No, I'm so sad he never made a name for himself because this movie was so good. <laughs> well, he did do quite a few other movies. In fact, he did The Birds, Vertigo, Rear Window, North by Northwest, and Mm-mm. countless others. I've never heard of any of these films. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so this book, Psycho, came across Alfred Hitchcock's desk and he decided he wanted to purchased the rights for the book. So he did for $9,000. And besides buying it for $9,000, he did his best to buy up every single copy he could find. And he did that to keep the mystery of the movie and the twist of the movie a secret as best that he could. Wow, that would be impossible now. Yeah, it really would. (laughs) So, you know, according to Alfred Hitchcock, it it was originally intended to be a comedy in the movie. This is what he said in an interview once. He said, I once made a movie rather tug in cheek called Psycho. The content was I felt rather amusing and it was a big joke. I was horrified to find some people took it seriously. It was intended to make people scream and yell and so forth, but no more than screaming and yelling on a switchback railway. You mustn't go too far because you want them to get off the railway giggling with pleasure. So that's kind of his uh, insight on what he wanted to express with the psycho. Hmm. With Hitchcock, I believe he also in real life had a big fear of policemen and that is one of the reasons uh, the policeman is so intimidating intimidating, and yeah. such a presence in this movie. Yeah, yeah. You're very uneasy with him. Yeah. Uh, the movie had a small budget. It was $800,000, which mm-hmm. was small. It is small still today. I mean, obviously, I mean, today it's, it's very small. small. But yeah, it was small even back then. And it was small because Paramount did not really like the idea and thought that the movie would fail oh. because it was so violent. They ate crow on that one. The birds. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So since it had such a small budget, they gave Hitchcock most of the box office intake, and it obviously became a hit, Mm -hmm. and Hitchcock made a ton of money off of the movie. Filming for the movie began November 30th, 1959. Because this did have a small budget, Alfred Hitchcock decided to hire lots of television cast and crew you know he had his tv show alfred hitchcock presents and he had a whole crew to his disposal so that's what he used to make this movie let's talk about the cast yes playing norman bates we have anthony perkins do you know what alfred hitchcock used to refer to anthony perkins as on the set no master bates 
<laughs> oh boy. <laughs> now, Anthony Perkins is incredible in this movie. He's really great. And you know what he improvised, which wasn't in the script? Huh. His eating of the candy. You know, I really <laughs> like that detail and how relaxed Norman is during that scene and how progressively more agitated he gets. But it's just it's just a little nuance. Yeah. Where I, also because he's like so satiated, he just he just murdered and he's just like in this post murderous glow of <laughs> yeah. carefree Norman in his beatnik uh, turtleneck eating some candies on the porch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know what's interesting? He did not play Norman as Mrs. Bates in the movie until the end. In the shower scene, it wasn't him. Mm-hmm. And I think in the other scene, when Where she's it, walking, when it's uh, Arbogast, it's not him either. Oh, like the three previous scenes then? Because one where she's walking by yeah. the window. Yeah. yeah. And okay. the reason it wasn't him was Hitchcock was worried if it really was him, people would be able to tell yeah. and give it away. For sure. So I think that was wise not to have him play those parts. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I agree. Janet Lee plays Marion Crane. I love Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite old-time actresses. Yeah, she's great. Originally considered for the part were other actresses, including Eva Marie Saint, Lee Remick, Angie Dickinson, Piper Laurie, Martha Heyer, Hope Lang, Shirley Jones, and Lana Turner. Shirley Jones? Yeah. When Janet Lee was cast, Alfred Hitchcock gave her this advice. Mm -hmm. I hired you because you are an actress. I will only direct you if A, you attempt to take more than your share of the pie, B, you don't take enough, or C, if you are having trouble motivating the necessary timed movement. He's kind of a weird director, right? Or a weird guy, Well, (laughs) yes and yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, After this movie was made, Janet Leigh spent the rest of her life only taking baths. (laughs) She didn't take showers afterwards. Is that true? Uh, That's what she said. Well, apparently when she filmed it, there wasn't an issue. But then when she actually saw the movie and then people kept bringing it up, she started to get uncomfortable. So she started to take baths, apparently. That's weird. That's unfortunate. Um, And after the movie, she did actually get threatening letters in the mail from people. Why? I don't know. Crazy stalkers. And one was so bad and violent that she uh, had to send it to the FBI. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So bizarre. People are wild. In the book, her name is Mary Crane, not Marion Crane. Hmm. Do you know why they changed it? Mary Crane must have existed somewhere else. That's right. That's usually why things get changed. (laughs) The studio uh, legal department did some research and found two real Mary Cranes living in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where Marion is from. You know what's interesting also? What? A crane is a bird. Yeah. And Norman likes to stuff birds. He does. But he doesn't stuff her. No. But he does cut her open. (laughs) He He slices and dices. Oh. So, you know, in the shower scene, there's lots of talk as to whether it was her in the shower when it wasn't a close-up of her, Mm -hmm. if she was really naked in the shower. I think it was her. She claims it's her. She said that uh, she, at first, would wear moleskin adhesive patches over the private areas. Yeah. What? (laughs) I like that you, just so everyone knows, since this is an audio medium... Robert just touched the parts of his body where these little patches would have gone. Yeah. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, after however many takes, the patches washed off and she didn't want to stop the day and, and, and just make it longer. So she just went on and she there were apparently crewmen up in the lights up above and she just gave them an eyeful. But I, I have also heard that a body double was hired, and the body double claims that all the shots where you don't see Janet Lee's face are her. Uh-huh. So I don't know. I, I, I tend to believe this. Janet Lee says it was all her in the shower, but the body double was the one that was wrapped up in the shower curtain afterwards. Okay. And that makes sense to me. And I think that's true because Janet Lee has specific stories about filming this shower scene and being naked. So mm-hmm. why would she make that up? Mm-hmm. Janet Lee, she was married in real life to Tony Curtis. Yes. And he believes, he claimed in his book that the fact that all anyone wanted to do was to talk to Janet Lee about the shower scene in this movie, it drove her to drink and it caused them to get a divorce. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know. If, I mean, it could be true, I guess, but I don't know. He seems like a weird person as well. <laughs> she was the biggest star of this movie. She had top billing. She was hired specifically because she was a star and that she was going to get killed off early, that it would be shocking that way. She never thought anything weird about it, but, mm-hmm. you know, people really were shocked by that. And they did the same thing again in the movie Scream with Drew Barrymore, remember? Correct. Yes. Yeah. In terms of horror movies, Janet Lee went on to also be in Night of the Lepus. The Fog and Halloween H2O, which contains many psycho references. In Halloween H2O, Janet Lee plays a character named Norma. Uh, she talks about a problem in the girls' shower room. Mm-hmm. The psycho music is peppered throughout the score. And the car that she drives is the exact car that she drove in Psycho and was buried in. Well, hey, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. I've had my share. Lila Crane. She's played by Vera Miles. Other actresses that were considered for this part were Felicia Farr, Carolyn Jones, Caroline Corney, and Eleanor Parker. Hitchcock first used her in the movie The Wrong Man, Uh and she was going to be in Vertigo, which is my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have yet to see that movie. Oh, terrific picture. Mm-hmm. But uh, she couldn't do it because she was pregnant. So she was cast in this movie, and she thinks that Alfred Hitchcock punished her in this movie for being pregnant when he was making his other movie. He was offended by that Every- because she feels like that she was forced to wear unflattering clothing in this movie that kind of hit her figure and all that. Uh She took it personally. Weird. But I will say, I think a lot of um, actresses ended up working with him at some point felt like they were being punished for something at some point. Yeah, lots of actresses. I didn't read anything of Janet Lee experiencing any of that, though. Vera Miles, she was also... She did a ton of things, but she was also in The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. The Twilight Zone episode was Mirror Image. Great episode. You'll find that there's lots of Twilight Zone people in this movie. Mm. John Gavin plays Sam Loomis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For this part... Uh, Hitchcock first wanted Stuart Whitman, Brian Keith, Cliff Robertson, or Rod Taylor. I don't know any of those people. Really? You know Brian Keith and Cliff Robertson and Rod Taylor. (laughs) Not by name. Rod Taylor uh, was in The Birds. Okay. Brian Keith was the dad of The Parent Trap. Oh, 
Uh huh. Wow, this is a very particular look of a man. <laughs> Cliff Robertson was, well, most recently he was, is it Uncle Ben in Spider Man? Yes. <laughs> yeah, <tough. laughs> um, but Hitchcock, he was very displeased with John Gavin, didn't want him, hated his performance, and referred to him as the stiff. Well, he's not wrong. He's not the best. He's very, there's, I don't know. I mean, he's, you'll probably talk about it, but he's in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yeah, he's also in Thoroughly Modern Millie, and, and he's in Spartacus. Perfect. He's absolutely perfect for those roles. He's <laughs> great in Thoroughly Modern Millie because he's just like a very, through most of the movie, he's very shallow. And he's just like a brawny guy that's kind of vapid. Yeah. But yeah, I could see. I mean, I don't think he's bad in this role at all. But um, there's definitely like not too much passion. Like maybe a different actor could have been better at being a distraction than he is Yeah. to Norman. That's true. But yeah. it's also the way it was written. Yeah, it's true. And directed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Playing Arbogast, we have Martin Balsam. Marty Balsam, mm-hmm. who is one of my favorite actors. I love him. Mm-hmm. He is in one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes called The New Exhibit. Oh, mm-hmm. I watch that one quite often. He's also in 12 Angry Men, All the President's Men, and a million other things. He's in a, <laughs> in a, a ton a of stuff. Bunch of other men movies. Yeah, he's in a ton of stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're both men. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's he was on a bunch of TV shows because remember a lot most of this cast are TV people. Okay, playing Sheriff Al Chambers, we have John McIntyre. He also was in the Twilight Zone, and you will also know him from Turner and Hooch, and he played Rufus in The Rescuers. Oh, and again, a million TV shows. <laughs> John Anderson plays California Charlie. Mm-hmm. Now, I like this actor. He was in four episodes of The Twilight Zone. My favorite one with him was he was the pilot in the Odyssey of Flight 33, mm-hmm. uh, where the plane goes missing and they see the dinosaurs out the window. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's in a million other TV shows. Mm. The officer, the intimidating officer, is played by Mort Mills, and he was also in Touch of Evil, another great movie with Janet Lee. And he was in Torn Curtain, the voice of Norma Bates. We don't know her name is Norma in the movie, not until the, the sequel. Oh. But she was voiced by Virginia Gregg, who was in a million TV shows, and she was in The Twilight Zone. <laughs> uh, she was the mom in The Masks. Oh. I have her face on my wall right here. Yeah. <laughs> She was the main voice for Mrs. Bates. She did the monologue at the end and all that. But in the early scenes, when Mrs. Bates is yelling at Norman, it's two different actors. They just kind of merge them all together. The other actors who had a few lines were Paul Jasmine and Jeanette Nolan. There's a little cameo. I don't know if you want to call it a cameo because he wasn't a star then, but... In the final scenes in the police station, one of the policemen is played by Ted Knight. Remember Ted Knight? No. He played Ted Baxter on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the news anchor. Oh, okay. I didn't really watch the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Oh, it's a wonderful show. I believe when it came on, I knew that it was time to go to sleep. (laughs) 
who can turn the world on with her smile. Uh, you know who else apparently has a small part in this movie? Who? I don't know where he is, mm. but Robert Osborne. Really? <gasps> TCM. Osborne? Yeah. Robert Osborne. Let me give you some, uh, some fun facts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the car that Janet Lee drives, uh-huh. it's a white 1957 Ford sedan, and apparently it is the same car used as the Cleaver's family car in Leave it to Beaver. Oh. Interesting, because uh, they're both Universal. Uh-huh. But this was Paramount. Well, it was shot at Universal. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, the movie was shot at Universal and eventually sold to Universal. Uh-huh. They were like, we don't need this. And Universal said, "Mm okay. They decided to shoot the movie in black and white for two reasons. One, it was cheaper. And also, it would be too gory in color, they felt. The first day of shooting, the cast and crew had to make a promise. Mm -hmm. Each one of them had to hold up their right hand and promise to not give the story away to anyone. And then the cast wasn't given the ending of the movie until they actually shot it. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you know what they used for blood in this movie? Yes, I do. What? Chocolate syrup. Yes, Bosco. (laughs) Bosco chocolate syrup. Uh, They did that because it came out better in black and white. Yeah, it even has like a little bit of a clotty thing going on with it, too, when it's going down the drain. Yeah. Yeah, it's very effective. And the uh, stabbing of Marion and Crane. Do you know yes. what they used to make that sound effect? Uh, some sort of instrument. No. They oh. actually had a knife and they stabbed it into something. Oh, the actual stabbing, not the musical part? A melon. Yeah. Oh, that was a guess. A cassava melon. Oh, uh, well. I feel like I watched some sort of thing on FX and they were like a melon. Like they're <laughs> punching and it's like this person ripping apart a melon. Or yeah. Something. Do you know what this movie is also significant for? What? The first American movie to ever show a toilet flushing. Yes, I heard this was controversial. It led the way to all the family with Archie Bunker flushing his toilet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One of the most iconic shots of the movie is in the shower scene. There's that great shot where the camera is looking right at the shower head and the water's going all around it. Uh Uh-huh. Obviously... To get the water to go around the camera, you need a pretty big shower head. So that shower head is actually six feet in diameter. What? They built a giant shower head to achieve that shot. What? Yeah. Sorry, you genuinely blew my mind with that. I did not know that at all. (laughs) Yeah. Because you got to imagine the camera is probably like, you know, two feet wide or something. Sure. I just thought they were like, use a different lens. (laughs) (laughs) Um. According to Alfred Hitchcock, the shower scene had 78 separate cuts Mm -hmm. within 45 seconds. I don't know if that's exaggerating or not. I feel like it might be, but there there are a ton of cuts in that scene. Why don't you count it? They might. Did they, well, did they not say that that was true? Did they debunk it in the movie that they made about it? I don't know. Did they talk about that in the movie? I mean, what? Did they talk about how many cuts are in the movie? The movie that's called, what, 7842 or whatever? Oh, was, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's literally based on the scene. I totally forgot about that. I'm going to have to look into that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at some point, Alfred Hitchcock, he uh, got ill. 
during the making of this movie. Uh-huh. And the crew didn't want to hold up filming, and he didn't want them to either. So they decided to shoot the scene of Arbogast going up the stairs and being killed without Hitchcock. And Hitchcock watched it. He actually liked it. But he thought that the performance of Marty Balsam, it looked as if he was going to commit a murder instead of being nervous and and worry about the situation. So he reshot it anyways because he wasn't happy about that. Mm. Now I told you off mic that uh, the psychiatrist scene just, you don't need it. I I don't think. Okay. It's just too on the nose and you don't have to know why about everything and apparently alfred hitchcock hated that scene and so did critics and lots of people that watched it everyone hated it but the studios forced it on hitchcock for two reasons one was just to make it more clear as to what happened but also to ease up what you just saw and to give people a chance to uh basically calm down i guess and to give reason behind this madness huh you know the uh the great mother corpse yeah wonderfully sculpted alfred hitchcock he wasn't sure if it was going to be scary enough and he wanted to do a test with it Mm -hmm. to see if it would be scary enough so one day he put the mother corpse in janet lee's dressing room of course and then she walked in and she saw it and he listened to see how loud the screams were (laughs) filming wrapped for this movie on february 1st 1960 Now, afterwards, the uh, music was done by Bernard Herrmann, one of the best scores in cinematic history. Yes. Uh, In fact, Alfred Hitchcock was so happy with this music that he doubled Bernard Herrmann's salary, and he credited Bernard Herrmann with 33% of the success of this movie. 33%. Well, I guess a third of it. Yeah. The directing, the way it was shot, and I don't know. And, you know, in fact... Alfred Hitchcock, when he did the shower scene, he imagined it to be silent, to have no music at all. But Bernard Herrmann scored it anyway, and after Hitchcock saw it with the music, he decided to keep it because he Mm. he loved it so much. Mm -hmm. And boy, was that great. Mm -hmm. When they first uh, cut this movie together, there was a cut without music, uh, how there is, or especially back then, there wasn't a lot of music. Now they use temp scores a lot. Yeah. But there wasn't any music in the first cut, and Hitchcock wasn't very happy with the movie. In fact, he was almost going to turn it into an hour-long episode of Alfred Hitchcock's Presents. Uh-huh. Just turn it into that. Uh, but once Bernard Herrmann scored it, he changed his mind and realized that this is a decent picture. <laughs> I told you earlier, uh, Sal Bass did the opening credits, and he was a famous graphic designer that did lots of opening credit sequences. He has also claimed to direct the shower scene, but everyone else says that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk a, a minute about the trailer for this movie. Have you seen the trailer? No. The trailer is very unique. I love it. It's about a six to seven minute trailer. Oh, geez. Yes, I have seen this trailer. Yeah. Yes. It's Alfred Hitchcock going to all the different sets talking about the grisly murders. Uh-huh. This young man, you had to feel sorry for him. After all, being dominated by an almost maniacal woman was enough to drive anyone to the extreme of, uh, uh, well, let's go in. It's so good. And then he goes into the bathroom and he opens up the shower curtain and then the girl's in there and he screams. But it's not Janet Lee. It's, in fact, Vera Miles, who mm-hmm. plays her sister, wearing a Janet Lee wig. 
An interesting thing about the movie when it was released, there were signs and posters all around theater lobbies saying that no one would be admitted once the movie started. And the studio told theaters not to let anyone in because back before this movie, people could just walk in and out of movies all day. You could see a you know, a triple feature or whatever it might be. Alfred Hitchcock was worried about uh, spoilers getting out and, and wanted people to experience the whole thing. Mm. So, Wasn't there also like a warning being played outside of theaters? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, he it's Alfred Hitchcock's voice and it's a warning. Even the posters had him on it. Yeah, the posters had him on it pointing mm. at his watch. <laughs> yeah, and it was like a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The marketing for this movie was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it was. And also, for the publicity campaign of the movie, they interviewed Alfred Hitchcock, and he had this to say. He said, It has been rumored that Psycho is so terrifying that it will scare some people speechless. Some of my men sent their wives to a screening. The women emerged badly shaken, but still vigorously vocal. <laughs> oh, uh, after the release, you know, Alfred Hitchcock received a letter from a father. And this is what the father had to say. Okay. Well, I had a letter from a man who said that uh, my daughter, after she saw the French film Diabolique, would never take a tub anymore because they had a scene with a man coming out of a tub and taking his eyes out. Some horror scene. He said, and after seeing that, she'd never take a tub. Now, having seen Psycho, she won't take a shower. As a result, she's very unpleasant to be around. (laughs) So I replied, I said, Dear sir, send her to the dry cleaners. (laughs) This was the highest grossing film of Alfred Hitchcock's career, made over $40 million. Holy crap, and And remember, he got a big chunk of that. It was nominated for four Oscars. Mm -hmm. Best Director, Alfred Hitchcock. Best Supporting Actress, Janet Leigh. Best Cinematography, John L. Russell. And Best Art Direction, Joseph Hurley, Robert Clatworthy, and George Milo. It did not win anything. No. Uh, Janet Leigh did win the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, though. Nice. Let's see. Then today, uh, you could still see the original Bates Motel in the house uh, on the Universal tour. So that is the original... Is that the original Beats Motel? Apparently, the motel has been rebuilt, but it's the original house okay. relocated from where it was during this filming. Gotcha. We have been to there several, many a times. We have. When I worked at Universal, I would take the golf cart up there and try to get in, but it was always locked. Mm. I did walk in the motel, though. I've only walked on the porch, and I think it was for a Halloween Horror Nights thing, and then uh, the porch for the hotel, as well as the porch for the house when we took that picture. Yeah. That Norman Bates put his knife up to my throat, (laughs) and I told him, no, thank you. No, thank you. And I said, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) So as as you know, being a horror fan, uh, Psycho influenced Halloween. Mm-hmm. heavily there's lots of references to psycho well the biggest being that halloween stars jamie lee curtis who is the daughter of janet lee mm-hmm. and uh dr santa loomis uh in halloween played by donald pleasance is named after sam loomis from psycho very nice pardon me i'm uh loomis dr sam loomis there have been some sequels to psycho mm-hmm. there was a psycho 2 a psycho 3 and a psycho 4 mm-hmm. The fourth one, I believe, was a TV movie. There was another TV movie called Bates Motel from 1987. There was the 1998 remake, which everyone hates. 
it's a shot for shot unnecessary remake yeah you know i watched it i don't know a few years ago and there's actually stuff in it that wasn't in the original movie Mm. but i mean good (laughs) doesn't really add but i mean overall it is shot for shot i will say my favorite thing about that remake is the guy that plays the police officer uh-huh. is uh the guy that played dexter's dad in oh, dexter yeah, and he looks exactly like the co- <laughs> like it's perfect i'm like no no no. he's just a time traveler and he's <laughs> yeah. like i'm just gonna keep playing this one role and then of course there was the bates motel tv series which we loved starring freddie highmore and vera Farmiga. i really liked that show oh so good rihanna was in it rihanna yeah rihanna Didn't played she... like the janet lee character yeah marion crane yeah yeah, yeah. Did she play Marion Crane or was she like Marion Loomis or something? I don't, I don't remember. I think it was like Mar- I think it was Marion Crane, but I'm I'm not positive. And yeah, so Psycho has become a uh, a classic movie that people love. It's known as one of the best movies of all time. I agree. I love it. Uh, what do you think, Anthea? Oh, I love it. It's one of my favorites. So that's the story of Psycho. Thank you. That was wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, I had I had a good time talking about this wonderful picture. Yeah, me too. Cool. Remember in Halloween H two O, LL Cool J says "psycho." All right, you can find us at podsandmonsters.com as well as on Instagram at Pods and Monsters Pod. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Pods and Monsters Podcast. And if you would like to email us, please email us at podsandmonsters at gmail.com. Feel free to drop into our DMs at any of our socials as well. We have our current list up that takes us all the way to the end of 2020 up on our website. Um, we're trying to stick to uh, the schedule, but you know, life. So these will come out as soon as we're able to get them out to you. And we really appreciate your time and your patience. And we love that you guys are enjoying this. So we hope that we're not terribly late. But when we do hit, it's just something welcome. So also, please rate and review us. If you enjoy our podcast, please drop in with a five-star review on iTunes and drop in a little blurb why you enjoy us. Um, It's just really nice to hear from from listeners and then also it helps us get seen a little bit more if people are reviewing we get kind of bumped around and our visibility on itunes um, gets heightened so we really appreciate the time you take to do that all right for pods and monsters i'm robert i'm inthia stay safe during the covids yeah and thank you so much for listening i'm going to uh go have dinner with my mother and eat sandwiches and milk i'm gonna go take a nice refreshing shower okay i'll see you there (laughs) (laughs) goodbye bye everybody are you sure you wouldn't like to stay just a little while longer